Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Kathy Swanson-Wheaton, and I'm the executive editor of the Betty Crocker and Pillsbury Cookbooks at General Mills in Minneapolis, and I'm here today to talk about Learn with Betty, our brand new cookbook. I find the hardest part of being a home cook is being a confident cook. How can this cookbook help us with our confidence in the kitchen? I know, right? Isn't that really what people struggle with? Whenever people find out what I do, or even my family and friends, you know, when we talk about um, what we're eating these days, that always comes up. It's like people like, oh, gosh, I, I wish I could make a great cheesecake, or I wish I knew how to make a good meatloaf. And so that's where the inspiration from this book really came from, is that, you know, Cooking really is not difficult if you understand the simple tip, tips and tricks to, you know, to make things turn out. And so we thought this would be a fabulous book for any kind of cook, whether, you know, I've had re- requests from friends who have said, you know, I have a nephew with special needs and he loves to cook, but he really needs a lot of step-by-step help. Do you have a book? It's like, absolutely. Learn with Betty is that. Or for the kids in college, just um, the new couples that are trying to um, cook more from home. They know what's going in their food more than eating out. And, um, you know, it's great for them. Or even the established cook who have said, you know, I've been making potato salad for years, but I just have trouble. The potatoes are always mushy. I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. So this is who we were looking at is all these different people and trying to help them by giving you the, you know, the recipes that you'd love to have in your hip pocket and be able to say, you know, oh, got friends coming over for dinner. I got something I can make for that. And really wow people with everyday good food. Although we did throw a few surprises in there. And we can talk about that later if you want. <laughs> Tell me about who this cookbook is geared towards and what sorts of things you wanted to include that went along with the Betty Crocker brand. Well, Betty Crocker is all about really, and always has been, about really inspiring the home cook to be able to make good food and really get joy from cooking and joy from sharing it with others. And, you know, you really find that food is really what brings people together. And um, that's where conversations start and memories, you know, happen. So we really wanted to gear this cookbook towards every type of cook that is out there from a brand new cook to someone who's been around the block for a while and is just looking for some inspiration or some tweaks and how to make some recipes better um, and just feel confident that you, you don't have to practice ahead of time. You can follow a recipe for the first time and have it be successful. Who was Betty Crocker? Well, Betty actually isn't a real person, which some people really don't know that, um, but it's, the secret's been out for quite a long time now. She's almost 100, actually, but she was created when there was a contest um, when our predecessor company, which was a flour milling company, held a contest and said that, you know, if you can um, complete this and send a letter in to us, you will get a flour sack. So it looked like a general or a gold medal flour sack pin cushion and pin cushions were all the rage those days. So all these people, thousands of people were writing in for this pin cushion, but along with it came all kinds of cooking and baking questions. And the smart executives of the company at the time realized that there's a big need out there and hired um, home economists to answer those letters and, um, and really help the home cook. And so Betty was created 
Um, they just took the name Betty because it was a, a warm and friendly name of the day and put it together with Crocker, which was the last name of an exe- a very loved executive that had just retired, and she was born. And so uh, she was just created to really help the, the home cook and has really served um, quite a lot of um, people over the years during the, the Depression when money was tight and um, people were off at war. She really helped then, and um, she just continues to be, you know, trending with the times, helping people know how to cook what's out there now, and just a a trusted cook in your kitchen. I love this. In the 1920s, Betty got anywhere between 4,000 and 5,000 letters per day as women moved into the big cities. So in 1924, one station in Minneapolis debuted the Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air. I love that. Was this the country's first radio cooking program? It actually was. So, you know, in today's terms, with all the cooking shows that are out there, this was like the first one. And it was on the radio and it debuted in Minneapolis and then became a national program. It actually ran for 27 years, which makes it one of the longest running um, radio programs of any type ever done. So, yeah, it was very popular. And, you know, I just recently learned this and I thought it was so funny that they had an unexpected audience um, on this with this program that they weren't in, in thinking they were going to get. Truckers, men started listening oh. <laughs> to it when they came home from the when they came home from the war. They loved her warm and friendly voice and how she was describing how to make these lovely dishes. And so I thought that was kind of fun to learn. Oh, that's nice. It probably reminded them of their mother. That could very well be. Yeah, and there's something about having home cooked food, and yeah, it just brings comfort to people. So. So in 1936, the first official portrait of Betty Crocker was released. Who determined what Betty would look like and what she would wear? Well, it's funny when you look at all those photographs now. um, She's got a very kind of stern, not necessarily friendly-looking smile to her. But um, at the time, I think they wanted to, you know, instill the idea that she is serious, that she, you know, has something to say, and that she can be very helpful. What they actually did for that first portrait was they took the eyes of one woman in the office, the hair of another, the lips of another, and they created the first Betty Crocker. And then they just passed around a piece of paper and asked different people to sign the name, and they just found her signature in one of the people that worked in the office. So in the 60s, I think she had a bit of a Jackie O look going on. Was that on purpose? (laughs) You know, I do think that they um, they were they took inspiration from the women of of the day that were um, inspiring and that women looked up to. And um, yeah, some people say she looks like Jackie O. There's a couple there that kind of look like Mary Tyler Moore. I think the '65 or the the '69 portrait, which is interesting too, because not only was she was she popular on TV, but that show was as if she worked in Minneapolis. And there's still a big statue of her in downtown Minneapolis. So that's kind of a fun nod as well. I always wanted to live in that Mary Tyler Moore apartment. <laughs> I know, I know, Remember the too. sunken <laughs> living room and her cute yeah, kitchen? Yeah, wasn't that the coolest? Yes. yes. Oh my gosh, yeah, that was very cool. <laughs> so in the 70s, it seemed Betty was ready to go to work. Yes, you know, some of the portraits starting in 69, she had more business suit, business attire on. Um, and they were trying to, you know, um, show that, yes, more and more women were entering the workforce. And um, I, the funny one, I think, is the one in 1986 where she's got her red suit, of course, but she's got a white bow tie. And that just always cracks us up, those that have, <laughs> have worked, you know, in the kitchens, because would you ever 
bake or cook in a bow tie. That's probably not a good idea standing over a stove. But <laughs> it was kind of the, you know, the clothing of the day. So it did fit her. After all these years, Betty is still relevant and people look for her inspiring recipes. What do you think contributes to her longevity? You know, I love that question. Um, you know, I think the, for those of us that do and have worked on Betty Crocker, there's a little bit of Betty in the hearts of all of us. Um, we really feel uh, that we, you know, we want to help the consumer. Um, it's always been, um, you know, primary that we that we do um, very quality work, whether it's the products that we that we make or the recipes that we develop. And, you know, we thoroughly test them we, and we think about the consumer all the time. Will they understand the directions? You know, what can we do to help them understand how to make something turn out well? And, and I think it's just this quality and this love of feeling like we are Betty Crocker that has added to the longevity. Describe how the recipes are divided up in Learn with Betty. Oh, sure. So we covered every eating occasion from appetizers to desserts. But then what we did was um, we divided, well, so they're divided that way, but every recipe is like its own cooking lesson. So it has the main recipe. It has all the techniques that you um, would want to know about how to make it successful. And these aren't like difficult things at all, but just tips and tricks that we've learned around the, uh, over the years. And then we have um, a beautiful photograph of that recipe and five ways to change it up. So once you, you, know, you, you understand the, um, the method to how to put it together, we let you get chefy with five ideas. And I think that'll even inspire people to come up even more of their own. So it's really like over 300 recipes um, that you get in this book. It's 62 core recipes and then um, five more for each, for each one. And we had um, fun picking the recipes that we were going to go in this book. You know, we have a fabulous consumer response uh, department that answers over a million queries a year. And we were able to tap into them and say, you know, what, what are the recipes that people are, are struggling with that they would like help with? Um, we pulled each other here at General Mills and at our um, publishing company. And I also went out on Facebook to my friends and said, you know, tell me what are the recipes that you'd love to be able to do that you don't know how to do. So that's how we kind of ar arrived at the, at the recipes that we have in the book. And I wanted to throw in a couple, you know, there's some standards that, gosh, doesn't matter, um, you know, that the, it's been around forever, like meatloaf, for example. Um, you make a good meatloaf and people are just going to talk about it. You know, yep. it doesn't have to be some fancy recipe that's, you know, Instagrammable. Actually, home-cooked, you know, comfort food is Instagrammable, right? And um, so we have those kind of recipes, but I also threw in a couple of really fun ones, too, that people would say, wow, you know, this is unexpected. Like, we have a cold brew coffee pie, which is just different and very on trend now with people loving cold brew coffee. Um, so, you know, you get a whole variety of things. So it's like no matter when you're cooking, whether it's for um, just a weeknight meal or you want to impress the, you know, impress the neighbors or something, you've got a whole gamut of things to choose from. Speaking of meatloaf, the other <laughs> night I made the savory meatloaf on page 84 and I also used the mashed potato inspiration on page 86. Oh, gosh. Awesome. I think meatloaf takes us all back to our childhood. So I read in Bon Appetit um, about meatloaf. They had a whole article about meatloaf. And 
They said it was here to stay in the 1950s, largely in part due to Betty Crocker. Did the meatloaf recipe premiere in the first Betty Crocker picture book? It actually did. It has changed slightly. But yes, that recipe was in our very first book, which, oh my gosh, has sold so many um, copies. They said at one point that that the only book had sold more copies than this is the Bible, which is I thought was really interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, back in the day, you know, Betty Crocker was trying to help women back in 1950. You know, um, money was tight. They didn't have a big food budget. And um, women used to have meat grinders, and they would grind their own meat. So back then, and use the trimmings then in recipes, and, and so this meatloaf was awesome because it used meat trimmings, both beef and pork, and then you could extend it by adding um, oats or breadcrumbs to it so that you'd actually get you know a, a more filling dish than just made with all meat. And so it, de- it debuted in the 1950 cookbook, but since then what we've done is we recognize that people usually don't have like a half a pound of ground pork around. So we've made the meatloaf all with ground beef. And um, we've also added a little bit more seasonings because our taste palettes have become more sophisticated over the years. So now it has the addition of Worcestershire and garlic. And back in the 1950 cookbook, they just suggested that you could top it with ketchup. Well, today we're, uh, um, you know, in the Learn with Betty book, you can top it with ketchup or chili sauce or barbecue sauce. And I like personally love chili sauce. It just adds an amazing taste contrast to the meatloaf. And people go, wow, what is this? And it's so simple to put together. That just took me back to my mom's meat grinder back in the day. Oh. And remember, they used to like screw it on the edge of the counter. Yes. Oh, yep. wow. They used to do that. I wonder where that went. So luckily, we... <laughs> it's probably in I know storage. This age, you can get them. For your big, you know, for your big stand mixer, you can you can do it over again if you want. Yeah. <laughs> so Allison Roman wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times called How to Eat in 2019. And her thing is to spend less time in the kitchen and more time at the table. One of her go-tos are tiny bowls filled with food that don't require any cooking. Now, most of the recipes in your appetizer chapter follow this idea. Yeah, they do. And, you know, that really, that can make a lot of sense because I really feel that when you have casual appetizers, it not only sets your mood as a hostess, it makes you, you know, less nervous about having people over, but it also sets the mood for your guests and that this is going to be fun and relaxed and we can say what we want and, you know, we can laugh, et cetera. Um, You know, and, you know, back in the 50s, Appetizers used to be so frilly and foo-foo and, you know, you put all this um, time and effort into them. But today it's like, gosh, if you have a killer appetizer, like a really good guacamole, who doesn't love that? But I do have to say that um, I think that there, we shouldn't miss the opportunity to get joy from the process as well as the end result of having food done and ready to eat. You know, I've really found that I have gotten a lot of memories, great memories from cooking with my sisters or baking cookies with my sons at Christmas time, or like with my husband when we were dating. Um, There's really a lot of joy that can be had in preparing it together. And that's one of my favorite ways to entertain, actually, where not one person is responsible for the entire meal, which takes a lot of the pressure off. But you can have fun throwing things together and then enjoy what you made. I love that. And people always want to help. Exactly. Yeah, they they feel bad if you're, you know, running around the kitchen and they're sitting there doing nothing. Um, 
we always do that at on, um, the holidays when we fondue. I used to, I started out and I'd have everything prepared when people came over and I'd be exhausted. And then I started thinking, well, wait a minute, why don't I have people help me get everything on the table? We can have people making the cheese sauce, you know, tossing the salad. People love that. And that's kind of become a tradition now that everybody has their job that they want to do when it's time to get the fondue ready. Can you tell us about the Betty Crocker kitchens? Oh, you know, there have been um, two or three different um, versions of them over the years. Originally, they were created to um, develop um, the prototypes for new products, uh, answer letters for that those consumers have been asking us ever since the beginning, and um, and create recipes that can go on the backs of packages and things for, for our products. Um, we, I actually worked in the, the last set of kitchens that kind of dates me. We used to have seven kitchens that represented areas from around the United States, and they were open for tours. And it was really fun to have people come through. They had over like 2 million people come through on tours from celebrities and dignitaries to Girl Scout groups and school, you know, school groups. But um, in the early 90s, they closed those because we we were doing so many new products that um, it was so confidential that we would have to shut our curtains or shut our curtains and our um, glass doors if we were having meetings in there. Yeah. And so these people would want to come on tour and now, you know, only half of them were going to be open or whatever. And we didn't feel like we were doing a service to the consumers if if they came all the way to see them and there wasn't enough to see. So today's kitchens are like at least triple the size of that. We have over 18,000 square feet, I think it is. Um, They're actually not available even to the company. You can't just get down there and go mulling around unless you have a special badge. But we do have huge glass windows that overlook some of our kitchens. And um, we have um, people there that, you know, uh, home economists, um, food, you know, um, food scientists and chefs that um, that create the recipes down there using appliances that um, people can have in their own kitchen. It's It's consumer appliances. We're not baking in big you know, bakery ovens or whatever. We're testing things just the way you could make them at home. We have both gas and electric ovens in each cooking area so that we can test the difference because sometimes um, we'll find that a recipe will bake differently in a gas oven versus electric. And so we, we account for that. So depending on what kind of oven you have, you'll know that it'll work out every time. So it's really fun to be down there. It's a very creative um, atmosphere. Um, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they're still in existence because it's, it, we just are always creating really fun and exciting recipes that, um, that show up either on our websites or in cookbooks, uh, those kind of things. I noticed that you included lots of color photographs and remembered that in the first 1950 cookbook, it was a picture book. Did you take inspiration from the first cookbook for this latest one? You know, until you said that... I'm not sure I even realized that I did, but I um, subconsciously, absolutely, you know, that book was such a big seller because it did include photographs with, with, um, with the recipes and how to make them. And people back then, just as people now still find that, you know, photographs really add a lot for helping to understand what something should look like. And it was interesting too, when I'm going through that 1950s book, I realized that in a way it, it is sort of like this book now where they, there were tips and techniques um, with the recipes. And we just added now the um, 
addition of giving you five new ways to create every recipe after that. So, yeah, in a way, they are very, very similar, and we're still holding to that traditional Betty um, way of doing cookbook. So moving on to my segment called My Last Meal, what would you have for your last supper? <laughs> I know. Do I have to pick one thing? No. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. You know, actually, I think I would probably choose fondue, and that's because I would have my family and friends and um, and people that, you know, that I have meant a lot to me with me to help prepare it and enjoy that time. And then fondue is one of these meals where you can't just rush through and be done. I love it because it, it causes you to sit, take your time, and you get to have a lot of conversation. And I would hope that, um, you know, that we could go over all kinds of memories of things that have been wonderful and stuff um, over my life. And, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so can you ever get enough cheese? There would be cheese <laughs> <No>. fondue. <laughs> and um, and then, of course, since it's my last meal, I wouldn't have to count calories or anything. So I'd probably have to finish it up with um, the Betty Crocker chocolate layer cake and chocolate frosting from I love the recipe that we have and learned with Betty. That's why I chose it because it's so good. And then homemade vanilla ice cream. I think that would do it. Or maybe maybe the killer brownies too. That's a really good recipe to do too. That was in Learn with Betty. Oh my gosh, it's got three different kinds of candy bars in the in the brownie and also in a um, peanut butter frosting. Oh my gosh, yeah, that probably <laughs> would be it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Where can we find Betty Crocker on the web and social media? Oh, Betty Crocker is out there to help you even when you have a last-minute need. You can go to BettyCrocker.com on the Internet, and we also you can also find her on Facebook and Instagram. What's better than having Betty right there in the kitchen with you? Thanks, Kathy, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks, Susie. It's always enjoyable to talk to you. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at CookeryByTheBook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book Podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.